Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Science, the show that breaks down the science of television and movies with a comedian and a scientist. Today we're discussing Zootopia, so I'll ask about bunnies, foxes, and politically corrupt sheep. But first, a short word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, I'm your host Ethan Edinburgh and I've got two wonderful guests joining me today. Our first guest is a professor of psychology at UCLA and because he's a waterfall of knowledge, we've had him on previous episodes like The Lion King, Black Mirror, and Memento. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Aaron the Blaze Blaisdell. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Uh, it's great to be back. It's great to see you, Blaze. Uh, I hope I can call you that during the episode and uh, that's fine. Not upset you, uh, uh, Purple Blaze. But you've got a uh, a symposium coming up. I saw, and you did not invite me to speak. Is that correct? That is an oversight on my part. <laughs> yes, we have the Ancestral Health Symposium, the ten year anniversary. It was born at UCLA. It's been around the country coming back to UCLA for the 10th anniversary. And we do have a packed house of speakers, but there was no room left for you. I'm so sorry. You know what? You can come to the after party. Oh, okay. I might take you up on that. That sounds actually really fun. Um, So yeah, we'll, we'll get more on that information later, but I have to introduce our second guest. Is that okay? Go for it. Okay, thank you, Blaze. Our second guest is a stand-up comedian and writer who has appeared on Conan, Bring the Funny, and much more. I'm thrilled to have him on the show. Welcome, Michael Longfellow. Hey, thank you for having me, Ethan. Hey, thanks for being here, Michael. Uh, I don't know if you watch basketball, uh, but I know you're from Phoenix, so I have to gauge your excitement level about the Suns right now. Very excited. I do watch basketball, and I love the Suns, and we're making a real run. Yes, uh, I'm also very excited and have been rooting for that team for years, actually, even though I'm from Miami, weirdly. Um, but uh, but anyways, now that live shows are back, I hope that we run into each other sometime uh, in L.A. and uh, we can talk about the Suns and all my secret, controversial, too hot for the podcast thoughts on Zootopia. Yeah, I would love that. I had no idea that you would for the Suns. That's amazing. I mean, I think everybody should be, at least, for Chris Paul. He's worked really hard for a long time. It's an time. easy team to, yeah, it's an easy team to root for. Yeah, come on. And they, the jerseys look cool. What's not to love? What's not to love? Seriously. Um, okay, so Zootopia, guys. This was the first time that I had seen this movie, but I want to find out from you. Uh, let's start with Michael. Have you Had you seen this before, or was this your first time? I've seen the uh, DMV sloth scene before, okay. but I'd never seen the movie. And what did you think about the movie? I thought it was a, uh, it was crazy. <laughs> there's a there's a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Lots unpacked. 
Um, yeah, I mean, would you recommend it to a friend? Did you think it was fun? Yeah, I thought it was a good, you know, like a cute movie. Um, I definitely recommend it to a, a friend or a friend's child. Or an enemy, even. But I'd also recommend it to, uh, to anybody, because I think there's a lot going on under the scenes. Behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah, I would agree. What about you, Blaze? Uh, was this your first time seeing Zootopia? Uh, no, actually. It's, my, I think, my third time. Uh, mm-hmm. When I watched it yesterday, I watched it in the theater when it first came out. I bought the DVD and I uh, watched it again with the kids, with the family. Um, and I had actually, um, fe- confession here, I am a little bit biased because I was a consultant on the film. Whoa! With Consulting on Zootopia, Blaze? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Byron Howard had called me in, the director of the film. Uh, and they do this. Disney really, especially under John Lasseter's leadership, they really started doing a lot of R&D for every film or TV show that they make. And I got in their Rolodex somehow, and I started getting called in on various projects. Wow. And Zootopia was the first one, and it was really fun to see the, the building of it as it was like from its infancy, really. Yeah, so what was that process like? I mean, did they bring you in, and did they show you drawings and say, do paws look like this, or what? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like that. I mean, you, they bring you into the to their uh, the big. You know, in, in Burbank, they have this uh, their their site, uh, and also they have a site for where all the directors and the, the production team works. And has a big um, hat, like in that uh, Mickey mm-hmm. Mouse film. Yeah, so you, they call you in there. You sit in a big boardroom um, with some of the writers, artists, sketch uh, people, and a director. And they have on the walls all of the like early stage drawings of what they think the characters, the main characters might look like, what the world's going to look like, you know, the sketches. And then they start taking you through the, the storyline, kind of what, what they have formed at the time, and but also pitching what the ideas are. And then for every um, kind of expert they consult with, they're consulting for a specific reason. In my case, it was obviously the animal behavior, you know, rabbits and foxes, and how would they all work if they're like human-like and living in a city together? How would they interact? Things like that. Interesting. Okay, so did you provide, like, do you recall any uh, information or advice that you gave them that you then saw in the movie? Um, it's hard to see specific things, but I feel like the movie, they, they captured a lot of the kinds of relationships between animals that I've talked about. And it's known. It's not like I was the only expert to know that predators and prey have these certain dynamic with each other, right? These certain kinds of relationships, uh, that there's a balance there. Uh, and so they obviously put that in the story, building up the the backstory of where they came from. And now they're no longer like that. And they live in harmony, kumbaya kind of thing. And and they were saying that that's like what they were talking to me about. It was like, you know, what, what are going to be the ways that the different animals might need to interact? And it, so no, no specific thing to answer your question, but just the overall feel felt, you know, honest and capturing what we had talked about. Awesome. Okay, well, I loved this movie, so great work to you. Uh, I assume basically by consulting, you also wrote it and did all the voices. Uh, so just my hat is off. Um, I thought it was great well, fun. all the errors are my fault. <laughs> yeah, and we're going to get into it. Um, no, I didn't even, I, I, nothing super struck me as like, errors you know like when we do kind of a more realistic space movie and all of a sudden you hear a bunch of noise in outer space or something but um but it did just spark a bunch of questions while i was watching it including the beginning so the movie starts out with like the animals doing a play 
and a tiger is attacking a bunny. And so, you know, it's a science podcast. I got to ask the hard hitting questions here. Do tigers eat bunnies? To my knowledge, no. Okay. Because they don't tend to live in the same areas with each other. I think even there, tigers wouldn't find much of a meal out of a bunny. <laughs> okay. It would be it's like an appetizer. Larger prey. Yeah. They wouldn't waste their time. You know. Okay. That's good to know. So we don't have to um, imagine tigers eating bunnies for the rest of this podcast. So that's nice. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but she does become friends with, uh, with a fox, but they are predators, uh, as they say in the movie many times. So do foxes eat bunnies? Foxes do eat bunnies. So they did play that up correctly. And that was, it's part of what they were asking me about in the consult was that dynamic. And they're going to be partners in this film and like, how might that play out that old history play out? And so, yes, they are natural predator prey. Okay. Are is there kind of like classic moves that the you know does do, do the bunnies have any sort of defense? I would think that they're they're quick. Their speed might get them out of a fox's mouth, but foxes are very fast as well. No. Yes, uh, foxes do try and ambush uh, silently. Uh, it's to their benefit because they're going after. If they're going after a rabbit, it would be a, ra- a, a kind of prey that can run away quickly if they're caught too soon or discovered too soon mm-hmm. yeah so prey animals like bunnies mostly are hunted by visual predators so uh, wolves and foxes are both they use scent as well to locate prey but then <clears throat> to chase down and catch the prey they're using vision to a large extent um, as well as birds of prey like owl, uh, owls and hawks also are visual foragers for the most part And so these kind of prey, like rodents and rabbits, have these different natural defenses that get engaged when they detect that there might be a a predatory threat nearby. And it depends on how imminent that threat is. If it's they think there's some kind of prey or predator nearby, what they generally do is freeze. So they stop all movement, try and hold as still as possible. The only noticeable movement you can see if you're watching them is the, the chest moving from breathing. But, you know, other than that, they're not moving. And that's because the visual predators are looking, they're detecting prey based on motion. Mm. So you've ever had a cat and you have like a, you, you dangle something in front of it or you shoot a laser point uh, on the wall and the cats are like just watching it. And, and wherever you jerk the laser point or the, the item, they jerk it and they, they watch it, they track it. And mm-hmm. they're, they're really drawing attention to motion. Now, once the predator gets close enough that it's about to strike at the prey, that's when they usually will then stop freezing and they'll book it, they'll run. And that's the rabbit's best defense. Okay, got it. That makes a a lot of sense. And I will say I'm not a scientist, of course, but I do have two cats. And I did read that when you play with a laser pointer with cats, they love it. But you can't just end the game because they get frustrated like they didn't catch anything. So you have to kind of like hide food while they don't see you and then bring the laser pointer to that little treat and then turn the laser pointer off. And that way they feel like, okay, I'm satisfied. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I've had cats and I've done the laser point game and and often didn't end it that way. But I would end it by petting them and giving them comfort of some kind. So I didn't leave them too stressed out at the end. 
Okay, I still think you're a monster, Blaze, but you know we, we don't have time to get into your psychology, unfortunately. Um, uh, Michael, have you ever been uh, hunting or eaten rabbits? I know people people eat that. Um, I don't think I've ever eaten rabbits, and I've never been hunting. Okay, good, same. So I wish I had more, but no. <laughs> I do. I will say I have a friend that has a laser thing um, that he leaves on at night for the cat, oh. and his cat is mentally ill and sick, and no. I think that has a lot to do with it, because it's just uh, it's a never-ending oh torture God. of um, <laughs> trying to catch something that can't be caught. Jesus, worst cat I worst cat I know. Did you do you know if the cat had these types of issues before he started using? I I don't. Okay. I, I met him. I met him when he was already too far gone uh, pretty crazy yeah too far gone wow a lost cause damn I, yeah i feel like that's but, even a uh, i don't know like immoral thing to sell cat company you know, big cat not my place <laughs> however uh however you want to own your cat own your cat i mean be good <laughs> yeah, yeah but in our research it shows <laughs> it's right on the line of of where i don't feel comfortable being like i don't think that's uh you know maybe you should turn that off well, I'm going to go ahead and take that stance because according to my research, 100% of stories that I've heard involving <laughs> all-night lasers have turned cats crazy. I have to spread crazy. this info. I have to, I have to tell them this. <laughs> It'd be irresponsible of me not to. Yeah, please. Do they, I mean, at, least, do they at least play uh, Pink Floyd music to go with the laser show? He doesn't. Oh, it's silent chaos. <laughs> oh, my God. So cruel. Um, okay, so I, I have to ask what the deal is with rabbits and carrots like there, there's a ton of carrot jokes in this movie there's you know the rabbits parents are carrot farmers um so can you explain like do rabbits just really love carrots is it a major part of their diet do they have to live near a carrot farm how does this all work yeah where did that meme get started yeah uh, to my knowledge carrots are not a major natural food source for rabbits. They tend to eat leafy greens that are above ground and carrots are a below ground, you know, storage organ for the right. plant. So they're, but they will dig up a garden to get at those things. And that's where I think the, the idea gets started with, with humans growing carrots and turnips and those kind of things. Um, the, the rabbits get into the gardens, they're eating a little down to the leafy greens, but they're also then digging up and going after the other things underground like turnips and carrots and stuff. And I don't think it's a major part of a wild, um, a wild uh, rabbit's diet, though. Wow. Okay. So this is just you know uh, propaganda that's gotten out of control. I can't believe that. Well, I mean, Bugs Bunny was always shown with a carrot in right. his mouth, right? So. Yeah. But so I assume, and maybe I'm wrong here, that that was already. Uh, a stereotype or like a common you know joke exactly or, right even before that yep yeah yeah going way back and, and i guess again because it's farming farming goes way back and among humankind so you know think of a, in england a farm and there are tons of rabbits in in the uk uh you, you go out to a farm and they're always putting fences up to keep rabbits out they have to get the fences down in the ground so the cuz the rabbits can dig under the fence and get into the garden so this tension between farmers and and the, the rabbits so i think that's where the idea about the carrot you know and rabbits going together comes from see it's amazing to me that it's so well known uh incorrectly improperly that they love carrots and yet i i never hear about them digging holes underground that's fascinating well i don't know a lot about it i just know that they make warrens 
Um, there's a great book, Watership Down. I don't know if you ever read it. They made it into a really violent movie because it's actually kind of violent scenes in the book of rabbit warfare, Whoa. rabbit on rabbit violence. Uh, oh my God. It's an allegory type of story told with rabbits as the characters. But the, it, it, the guy who wrote it, uh, Richard Adams, did a lot of research among people, uh, talking to a lot of people who knew about rabbits, like rabbit biologists. Um, and there are such a thing. And got his facts straight. And so it really, they do dig. They're really good at digging. Um, they can tunnel a few feet uh, in a day easily. And so, yeah, wow. it's a great way for them to both escape predators, escape getting, uh, be safe, a safe place to raise their young, and to get past those pesky fences. Wow, fascinating. And I guess foxes do a similar thing, right? Isn't there a foxhole is like a... Uh... Mm-hmm. I don't know if foxes are as good at digging as rabbits or if they use already mm -hmm. existing holes. That's a good question. I don't have the background on that. Oh, interesting. Okay. So maybe maybe rabbits have the upper hand there with the with the digging. Like they can get out of uh get out of danger. Um okay, so <laughs> this is a this is a silly one, but there's so many different types of animals in this movie and they like you said are like living in this big city and doing a lot of kind of human uh activities including what they eat there's cops which are you know rhinos and the like and they're eating donuts and uh coffee and stuff like that and so i have to ask if animals can have these treats they will eat them if you give them to them, if there's an opportunity for a wildebeest to eat a donut, it probably would. Okay, but not healthy for this wildebeest, I would it imagine? It would not, no, it would not be healthy for them. Just like it's not healthy for us. It's probably even less healthy for them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I just visited home. Uh, I was in Miami and my mom has a dog and she let the dog lick the remains of her acai bowl. Oh, yeah. And I was quite alarmed by that. <laughs> and she was like, no, it's fine. It's just fruit or whatever. Um, Ooh, not, not, not that fine. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad I have this on the record. So dogs should not have acai bowls. Is that what you're telling me? <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. No donuts, <laughs> no ice cream. My grandmother used to give her poodle ice cream. Why is it worse <laughs> yeah. for, for animals than it is for us, you think? Well... It, I don't know if it's that much worse for them, except that they're smaller. They don't have a history. Humans at least have a, a history of some sort of eating kind of these processed foods. Mm -hmm. um, and primates have a better ability to break down sugar that comes from fruit, and therefore the, the really massive amount of sugar in ice cream and then acai bowl <laughs> would, I think, we're a little bit better able to handle that than uh, an animal's more from a predatory background. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, like evolutionarily, we yeah have experience digesting that stuff and they don't, so who knows what it's going to do to them. Yeah, it's like a spectrum. I mean, we're further along the spectrum of it being somewhat doable without being too much long-term harm. But of mm -hmm. course, it's easy to fall off that spectrum. And you're, it sounds like you're kind of anti-ice cream, anti-donuts. Is that correct? Those are two of my favorite desserts. But yeah, I don't <laughs> eat them, really, except on a real occasional treat because mm. uh, I just know how it messes me up. So, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. You have a favorite ice cream flavor. Gotta ask. It's law. That's the law. Yes, of course I do. Uh, chocolate mint. 
Wow. Okay. Also mine, Michael. Uh, Rocky Road. Rocky Road. Wow. It's a, that's a rare one. That's a rare one. I, well, just when asking people. That's on the. That's Mount Rushmore. <laughs> I mean, that's a classic. Don't get me wrong. I'm I'm all about Rocky Road. I just rarely hear that response to favorite ice cream flavor. I may have just said the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> you may have. It might be, Who ne- else it might I be ask? Neapolitan. <laughs> now that I think about it more. Okay, that makes sense. What about donuts? I feel like, and this is maybe just my mind going crazy right now, but here in LA especially, there's like a donut shop every street. There's just, it's like... I've noticed that. Some of them are just called donuts. Yeah. Too. They don't like have a real name. No, correct. I don't know how they list, how they got incorporated. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, there's donut shops everywhere and I'm so, they're also so cheap. And so I'm so curious how these things stay in business. It's like baffling to me. It's like pizza shops in New York city. Yeah. Just one in every corner and cheap. Yeah. Don't they just fill their dumpster at the end of the night with, with donuts that no one ate hundreds of donuts? They must, right? And they're the, that's why they have a lot of rats. (laughs) Yeah. But the rats aren't paying the bills. No, <laughs> very strange to me. Um, okay, uh, well, uh, to find out exactly how the rats do pay the bills, uh, I'm going to ask that question right after this break. The break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. So we're back, and we're talking about the economy of rats. Um, I do want to... <laughs> there were rats in this movie. Some of my favorite parts were with the rats, actually. And, for example... Were there ra- Well, there maybe were- they were mice. Am I wrong about that? Mm. That little that little town? The little... The, there's, oh, yeah. There's, like, a little rodent town, and then there's, like, mafia rats or mafia oh, mice. Oh, Mr. Big. Mr. Those Big. were not... As far as I can understand, those were not rats. Oh. Those were, like... Um, what was it? Like a vole or a... Oh. Or, or shrew, I think. Okay, very cool. I did not know that. Do do they live in the tundra? Because I believe that all took place in Tundra Town, and I was a little surprised to see that kind of rodent, uh, you know, in the snow. Yes, they do. Uh, in fact, I was in Buffalo a couple years ago, and I saw voles hanging out. You know, where normally in the wintertime it would have been all snowy. This was summertime. So I know mm. that there, those northern climates have a lot of these real small uh, voles and shrews and things like that. Do you know if they're often involved in organized crime? <laughs> like this movie Ooh. tells us? I or is try that carrot? I really avoid them. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Doesn't eat ice cream, doesn't mess with rat mafia. <laughs> Volmoff Mafia, excuse me. I don't want to appear speciesist. Um, Speaking of the climate, there's... I love how in the same, I don't know, city, I guess, there's like really diverse ecosystems that are in very close proximity. Um, And although I thought that was very cool, I thought this is probably unrealistic. But maybe I'm wrong. I hope that I'm wrong. Are there like really diverse ecosystems really close to each other on the planet? Not that I'm aware of, except at zoos where they artificially create such a situation to to some extent. Mm. Obviously, even at a zoo, you go where like the polar bears are. It's not as cold as like really snowing. Uh, But they do at zoos, I will attempt to try and maintain something that's approximate for the species in a particular area. And since they have species from all different climes, though they they do some 
job towards doing that. Uh, yeah, obviously, in the movie, they had figured this out to a mega scale. Right. right. There must be a science behind it, that city construction. And actually, uh, the uh, Byron Howard told me that uh, the previous person he had consulted with was actually somebody was interested he was interested in figuring out how do you get all the different animals of from elephants and giraffe size down to shrew and bull and mouse size to interact in a city together. Mm-hmm. And so he had consulted with somebody who's an expert in fractals and he designed a city based on this fractal layout of, uh, you know, the, the big scales and smaller scales replicating so that they can interact. Wow. Yeah, that, that was awesome. I mean, it's, it's, I don't care who you are. Really entertaining to see all these animals together uh, going to work. And I have to actually ask, there's not a zoo in the traditional form, but it is called Zootopia. And zoos are across the board somewhat terrible. We, everybody (laughs) kind of agrees. But then there's like, there's always an asterisk and there's always like, well, but also if it wasn't for the zoo that I went to when I was eight... I wouldn't have become a scientist and done all this amazing work, et cetera, et cetera. So do you fall somewhere on the on the spectrum or are you just like categorically against zoos? Mm, good question. And when I was a kid, I absolutely loved zoos. In fact, I wanted to work at a zoo. That was like my dream job when I was a little boy because mm-hmm. I loved animals. I just really loved them. So I loved being at zoos. As I got older, I realized that the conditions are kept in often are not very good they're either socially isolated or they're very bare conditions um and the animals will show signs of distress in those kind of situations they pace they might pluck at their fur they just they don't look happy and they look depressed right but i remember when i was in college (laughs) reading in uh the science section of the new york times Somebody was covering the uh, the fact that the Bronx Zoo had just changed the habitat that the rhinos were in, such that it was much larger, a lot more space for them to hide in. Uh, and the same, I think they were doing the same with the gorilla enclosure. And some people were complaining because they couldn't see the animals. But of course, they were doing it because it was a much more natural setting for the animal. They, they then a lot of their problem behaviors, uh, abnormal behaviors, went away. They started acting more like calm and seemed happier so and there's been a movement at least since the 80s for zoos doing that you see a lot of zoos like the la zoo here it's a lot better situation of course it's not like the real thing but it is getting better and so i i do feel it's it's okay as long as we're really trying our best to be good stewards of the situation of these captive animals speaking of uh you remembering something that you read in the New York Times from college, I I have a bad memory and it uh, plagues me. I'm always concerned that I'm forgetting stuff. Um, there's a quote in the movie. They say elephants remember everything. That's kind of kind of like with the carrots and the rabbits. Like we've heard this a million times that an elephant never forgets. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I can't remember my fourth grade teacher's name or where I left my phone charger. So what's the deal with, with elephant's memory? Well, there are two answers to that question. Of course, I'm a scientist, so I have to have multiple answers uh, to what seems like a simple question on the face of it. And it, and again, it's an excellent question. Uh, one, 
they don't have better memories than other animals as far as we can tell in terms of the types of different memories systems that they might have. Uh, but I'll follow that by saying they're a very long-lived species. And they seem to have retained memories from when they were young all the way through to old age. And since that can span many decades, therefore the memories can last decades. And so in, in that sense, yeah, it's, they have really long-lasting memories, but that's probably because they're very long-lasting individuals in, their, in terms of their lifespan. Would you say it's similar to the carrot-rabbit uh, fascination yeah. propaganda? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say it's overblown. Overblown? <laughs> Man, yeah. we are disposing of myths here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, and 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 that the, the makers of Zootopia actually showed that that elephant did not have such a great memory after all. That's true. I did enjoy that <laughs> bit. Uh, a great joke there. So a lot of animals in this movie are walking on two feet that normally do not. Um, was that discussed in your consultations or was that just a decision like, okay, we're going in, let's not question this. Um, and then of course I have to ask like, are there animals that, that like do that? I've seen, you know, videos of bears where they get on two feet for a little while. Um, so, so yeah, why, why do they do that? And why did we start doing that? But they actually did explain, they did say they made that choice to do the human, you know, human like, um, anthropomorphized animals uh, and but they said they wanted to make it believable they wanted to make it so that the uh, and, they, and they discussed it with me and it, it seems very valid and as a little backstory um, Byron Howard's favorite Disney film when he was growing up he told me was the Jungle Book oh yeah and he's always wanted to make a movie in that same vein of like animals that are talking and interacting with each other and with people maybe, although in Zootopia it's just the mammals. Mm -hmm. So he, he, he kind of wanted that, that was a genre of the film he was going for. And you know, there's a certain amount of believability of, of fantasy that we buy into. And to me, I thought that was fine. I even said, yeah, that sounds fine to me. Great. Oh, and so do animals do the in a, and actually do this kind of uh, bipedal uh, locomotion, as it's known? And as you said, bears will get on their hind legs. They don't walk too much on their hind legs, but they will get and stand and so they could see further or look more intimidating <laughs> if they're threatened. Uh, there are some uh, primates that will occasionally get on their hind legs and walk short distances. Chimpanzees, if they're carrying something, can do that. Oh. Uh, gibbons, you know the kind of ape that uh, swings from branches, these really long arms, and, and their shoulder just pivots like 180 Whoa. as they're swinging. They're, they're, they're like monkey bar type swinging. Those are called gibbons. They're a type of ape that lives in Southeast Asia. Hmm. And when they do go to the ground, they can't walk quadrupedally on all fours. They have to actually walk on two legs and keep hold their arms out to the sides. Looks kind of comical. Okay, interesting. These these gibbons are similar to us and and jacked. Sounds like more jacked. Oh, upper body for sure. Their <laughs> lower body not so much, but yeah, their <laughs> upper body is strong. They're, they've forgotten yeah. leg day. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Uh, and humans started walking. At, over five million years ago so early on in the split from the other great apes the when the hominid line that led to humans um bipedality was one of the first 
changes, one of the first adaptations to being human. The large brains came much later, actually. Was there a evolutionary reason for it? Was it, you know, a survival mechanism or something? Right. There must be an evolutionary reason for it. There's still some debate about what that is because it's very mm -hmm. tough to test that idea. Um, and we have fossil evidence for the fact that they were walking um, bipedally. Okay. But to know what, what, was, what was the cause. And one of the best scenarios that seems to be the biggest consensus in the field of paleoanthropology, the study of ancient humans, is that with the change in the climate, and this is in Africa, was becoming very dry about seven, eight million years ago, and forests were shrinking, and grasslands and savannas were getting larger, a larger part of the African continent. And so the space that the more chimp or gorilla orangutan-like ape, the forest apes, were living in was getting smaller and so some apes might have ventured out uh, into more open woodland and savanna type environments and there to stand up above the level of the grass because grass is not like what the, a mowed lawn we're talking about like really tall grass that's almost as up to our chin wow. uh, for us so if they're standing bipedally they can look further see maybe potential predators like uh, cheetahs and lions Ooh. And they might be able to carry things and and locomote bipedally and carry things with them. So, like stone tools. They think that, that those two things kind of go hand in hand, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> hand and foot, maybe, I don't know. Stone tools and walking bipedally. So that's the best story so far. Got you. Okay. That makes sense to me. Um, Michael, you believe in evolution or no? Uh, yeah. I think so. <laughs> okay, cool. I don't know any other good ones. <laughs> that one seems like the best, most reasonable to me. Yeah, the other popular one has to do something with uh, God, and he made Adam and Eve, and that was like... Uh, do you, do you yeah, and that's a fun one, too, you know, and I spent my time with that uh, <laughs> as a boy, but I just think the evolution one, <laughs> it's easier to grasp. Yeah, yeah, same here. There was a, a point where Judy Hopps, our main rabbit bunny character dirty cop by the way dirty cop you're calling her out she is a uh she's going off her beat to fulfill her own agenda she's an opportunist and i think she should have her badge taken away oh oh my lord <laughs> absolutely she got lucky she stumbled into something bigger than herself yeah and she got bailed out i mean let's call it what it is but the you're way right. I, hey yeah the way she plays the game it's problematic yeah yeah she definitely also used her size to her advantage because she like related with the sheep uh, politician who you know told her like oh you're on this case now she was about to be fired that's true and look who uh look who that turned out to be you know exactly the uh the enemy in the end yeah yeah she was making friends with the enemy early and i agree with you judy hops our main character the movie should have ended 20 minutes in should have been fired sent back to the farm and that's it mm-hmm made an example of classic corrupt cop story <laughs> um but she says we bunnies are good at multiplying and this is again another carrot propaganda um you know i gotta label it uh as such so but maybe i'm wrong maybe it's true like how good at multiplying are they is it because they enjoy mating more than other animals <laughs> like because i mean that's the common conception right 
that they enjoy mating more than other animals. That's I mean, I've heard many jokes that, yeah, that are are basically uh, implying as much. Hmm. Uh, going at it like rabbits, you mean like that kind of thing? Right. Yeah. They do put out a lot. They're very productive, <laughs> and all living things pretty much can experience geometric growth. So if you have two, that'll get four, four will get eight, eight will get 16, so on and so forth, as opposed to linear growth, one gets two, two gets three, that kind of thing. But there's different, again, it's a spectrum. Humans are much closer to the linear side of things, although you wouldn't know about looking at, what is it, eight billion almost now, people on the planet? <laughs> mm -hmm. But <laughs> we've taken away all of the evolutionary pressures, that's why. Or is it... Uh, and then you have things that are much more on the, like, just pump out as many as possible and hope that some of them survive. And rabbits are a little bit closer on that side of the spectrum, especially for mammals. They're much closer to the just, you know, play the numbers game. Mm -hmm. do, do I mean, even in the mammal world, are they producing more than others? Like, is there a reason that we you know, we, we label them like this. They're similar to uh, rodents in that way. Uh, rabbits are not in a rodent family, but there are like similarities in lifestyles and mm. including, um, you know, just how, how many babies they'll have a, in a year because rats, mice, hamsters, they can also put out a lot, um, reproduce quickly. Uh, gross. I can, I can actually contribute to this. Oh, great. Uh, I had a, me and my sister each got a rabbit when we were little kids and we didn't know that they were male and female and <laughs> before we knew it we had like 20 rabbits wow. and then like 40 rabbits and my mom had to basically become a person that sells rabbits <laughs> she quit her job and for a little changed while. into a yeah. rabbit saleswoman <laughs> yeah she had she, she thought she was buying two rabbits <laughs> it, was a star it was a starter kit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was insane. And the dad wasn't even a good dude. He would leave and we'd think he died or something or a coyote got him. And then she would have a litter and he'd come back and he'd do it again. And then he'd bounce. Whoa. <laughs> and you guys probably made a killing. You know, they don't. They're not <laughs> as in demand as you'd think. <laughs> they're pretty cost effective. Yeah, you can kind of scoop up a rabbit for, for cheap. Turns <laughs> Might out. be a few bucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People are really trying to get rid of them. Right. Yeah, I think I could I could see why that that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, speaking of getting rid of them, there's something in this movie that's like turning animals savage and making them kill each other. And so if you're interested in how animals kill each other, then stay tuned. We'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go show about science okay so we're talking about animal death <laughs> on the program <laughs> um so animals are going savage in this movie which actually going back on what we said earlier makes sense because they you know then they get on all fours like throughout the whole movie they're they're yeah. bipedal like you said and then they you know they become more animalistic yeah that, that was i thought they captured that idea really great yeah yeah me too um but it turns out, spoiler alert, they are eating a flower called Night Howlers. Um, so I have to ask about the validity to, to that. Actually, and that was another reason they brought me in since I'm in the psychology and behavioral neuroscience uh, faculty at UCLA. It was, in addition to my knowledge of animal behavior, they're kind of getting my knowledge of brain behavior relationships. And is it possible that there could be something that an animal eats that can have such a profound effect on their behavior. 
And so I guess you're dying to know the answer to that. Uh, yeah, I'm losing it right now. <laughs> Have you ever tried uh, those magic mushrooms? I, uh, you don't have to admit it, but you, have you, do fan. you know anybody who's Michael's tried bleeding the magic mushroom? I know, uh, I know a guy who knows a guy. So there are substances that can affect the the chemicals in our brain, known as like neurotransmitters, that can affect them in ways that can have quite profound effects on our behavior. They tend not to have such a such a profound effect as in this movie or and not such a long-lasting almost permanent effect mm -hmm. like they usually substances that we ingest that can alter our state of mind shift our behavioral systems towards something maybe stirring up some ancestral feelings that uh, they they wouldn't last more than the length of time it takes for them to work their way out of our system mm -hmm. you know maybe hours Gotcha. So that's a, it was a little bit of a stretch there, but but you know it's it, actually and one thing we did discuss I remember during the those discussions was that there are for example viruses that can have permanent essentially effects on behavior that affect behavior quite a bit and have you heard of toxoplasmosis? No. No. Really? Okay. Can't say I have. Uh, it, have you ever heard that the the meme of a pregnant woman shouldn't have cats or should definitely shouldn't clean out the cat litter? No. If they have a cat, if a woman's pregnant. Okay, because toxoplasmosis is carried by I can't remember if it's a bacteria or a virus, but it, you could search it on Google. Toxo plasmosis and it's basically you can get infected with it and what it normally does it's cats can carry it and it's passed on in their feces gross i know and if mice or rats somehow ingest part of it um, it gets into their system the toxoplasmosa organism goes to the brain and can make the rat or the mouse unafraid of cats so that it makes it easier for the cat to catch and eat them, therefore, compl thereby completing the site the the, uh, the cycle of this parasite. Oh my God! This, yeah, and, and this parasite actually can change human behavior. There's evidence, what? good evidence, that people who have infected with toxoplasmosis are people that are more likely to do things like bungee jumping or those kind of maybe drive without the seatbelt on or you know just like a little more risky behaviors oh there God. actually is evidence that it has these effects not nearly as profound as the effect it has on its natural host which is a rodent but even in humans it can have some effect so even if there's not maybe a, a chemical like in the the howler maybe or, or maybe it was a i think they left it open to interpretation about what the actual mechanism of action would be in the from the flowers maybe it was a parasite in the flower mm -hmm. that affected the the brains of these uh, predators and so yeah those are the kind of things we discussed i remember that uh, made it seem like you know it's it's obviously fantasy but it's based on plausibility so to recap here you're telling me if i eat my cat's crap i might want to kill myself or you wouldn't fear anybody yeah there that's more like what if you could eat it like before a big meeting and then, uh, you know, you're not, 
I'm afraid of the boss. Yeah, <laughs> you're not afraid to ask for that promotion. Is there? Is like? Is it always a negative to have this parasite in your body? I would imagine so. Parasites no, are bad. No, not necessarily. Like, oh, actually, here we go. Like really? you're asking, you're, you're posing See? some interesting ideas here. Maybe you can get ahead. And, maybe if you're Just like a, you know, a wartime maybe, um, CEO, maybe they need to have that more aggressive uninhibited a stand-up comedian before a big show i mean are you suggesting uh, as an experiment that michael like maybe we can book two shows right back to back the first show you do how you normally do and then it i will volunteer and then, for this. good I'm, i really needed your permission so i'm glad you're down for science <laughs> it's, yeah it's gonna help I, us i can record the data yeah yes where do i sign okay the forms in the mail <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I don't know. Like, yeah, you said like microdosing uh, cat feces that you know has this nope. parasite. What's wrong with that? Nothing could go What's wrong. What's wrong with it? Early show, no parasite. Late show, parasite. Yeah. And we'll see how we it don't goes. tell the audience. And then if you get more laughs the second time, then we know that it works. Wow. And then you know, then I basically have my own alpha brain product. Right. Yeah. Then you can sell it. And that's huge. <laughs> what would you What would you call this? Because you shouldn't call it kind of what it is. It could be, you know. Hey, but, but, yeah, but, definitely but there, something far away from parasite. But there is <laughs> that. There feces. is that coffee that's gone through a civet cat's digestive system, and then they collect the beans afterwards Whoa. and make coffee. You've heard about that, right? No, I have not. Is that a bulletproof coffee? It, it, it'll make you bulletproof. Now, it's not the same as Dave Asprey's bulletproof, but it might have the same effect. No, I've I just heard about this, you know? Have you not heard about they the... They feed cats coffee beans, which I assume, once again, it's bad for the cat. I imagine it would be. Right. I don't... It's. I, I, I assume this is real, because I've seen it <laughs> written about somewhere. This has to be expensive. And, and it is, yes. That's Whole Foods for sure. Yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, if I can interject, when I was watching yesterday, I caught a possible bloop. Oh, here we go. Shout it out. And so, and I had to look this morning just to make sure that I was, you know, caught it. So, at, you know when the, the, the large panther went wild and was chasing them? Yep. And they're on that rickety bridge mm -hmm. and, you know, they're, she's calling, you know, the... the uh, guy, the paw guy, the cheetah that mans the front desk right. uh, at the police station. And he gets the call, but right after he gets the call and she puts forward the, you know, the whatever number it is, 1011 or whatever it is, um, the call of distress, she drops her phone. It falls, falls, falls deep into wherever that, that they were in the jungle area, I guess it was. Then a few scenes later, they're going to that off-site facility where all the wild animals were kept and she's using her phone oh, as a flashlight my god and i had to the, oh, to, wow. to close in on it and i really it was the phone with the carrot on the back he's like instead of an apple it's like a carrot uh on the back of her cell phone it's like oh how did she get a new one so quickly because she did go and talk to that sheep woman and the sheepwoman let her use the city service to find it with the cameras to find out where the oh, right. where, where they went, right? So it's between that those two scenes, maybe she just really quickly got a backup phone somewhere. But it was like you know, that just. I mean, that would have been a great scene. Yeah. them going to the carrot store and her buying the new. <laughs> and it's never quick. 
exactly. it is never quick at the carriage store. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So maybe it was in there, but it was just too long. It's a deleted scene. More sloths. That's in the extended version. Yeah, it's her. It's a three-hour three hour cut of Zootopia. It's her asking about the difference between the carrot eight plus and whatever. <laughs> well, this one, the camera's a little bit better and it's more expensive. Okay, the, the howling I have to ask about. Uh, Judy, our corrupt cop who should have been fired and put behind bars, starts a howl with these timber wolves, which means she howls, it makes another, it makes a timber wolf howl, and then a bunch of them howl. So why do they do that? Well, normally wolves would howl because they disperse. Um, they're like a big group of related or friendly individuals that, that form a group. Mm. And they'll disperse during the day to go hunting, some hunt over here, some hunt over there, some are taking care of the young. And then Usually in the evening, they'll or early morning, where they'll howl to kind of communicate where each other is, and they can kind of convene, you know, reconvene together. Crows do this too. When you hear crows just sitting up there cawing, like caw caw caw, on the branch, you're like, why is that crow just cawing? <laughs> it's actually doing the same thing because crows also have these what they fission fusion groups. Like they're they'll uh, fission off into their little groups of two or three, four crows or wolves, and they go off and do their own thing, foraging for food, and then they'll come back into big groups, the uh, fuse back into the big groups uh, for the evening or something. And so certain types of animals like crows and wolves will do that. And that's the point of the howling is to communicate over longer distances. Got it. Okay. So it's like a, like a tracker. It's like a geolocation move. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. And finally, you mentioned that lab where they're keeping some animals and it just reminded me about animal testing and i assume because the human species is monstrous that that's still happening is that correct is animal testing happening well it depends on how you define animal testing it is happening i test animals i have rats and pigeons at my lab at ucla and i study behavioral neuroscience types of questions with them then there's all the way to the idea of like, you know, the perfume companies forcing rabbit eyes open and dropping drops. And, you know, so, so animal testing could be a lot of different things. People, I have a colleague who studies marmots in the wild in Colorado. He um, tags them, I believe, and then he just watches them for the most part and watches them, observes them naturally, and occasionally can do an actual experiment. Uh, like you put a speaker up and you play a call and you see like an alarm call or something and you can see how do the different individuals react. And so that's a form of animal testing. So that's a broad question. Okay. Well, first of all, we already established that you're a monster. I would love to have your friend on the program because that guy sounds really interesting. And finally, yeah, I'm, I'm referring to the evil animal testing. I don't know what to call that exactly, but it's, it's, the the animal testing of my nightmares what about feeding coffee to cats i mean is that in the realm of animal testing yeah great question that does seem cruel and unusual to me yeah 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 to, to answer your question I, I don't know a lot about all the history of that but i do know that at university systems and at zoos as well the regulations that govern 
the ethics of keeping animals in captivity and the kind of treatments we could do has gotten so much more oversight over the past 20, 30, 40 years. There's been a lot more since the 80s. There's been a lot more and a steadily increasing amount of oversight and concern and review of all procedures, all conditions under which animals that are kept in captivity for research purposes, for entertainment, uh, which zoos fall into that category, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as research. A lot of research goes on at zoos as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more oversight than there used to be. And so there's a lot less of the kind of unethical, in our view, mad scientist kind of tests done or or evil company that just wants to get their make sure their perfume isn't going to destroy girls' eyes before they get it or, or makeup before they get it out there on the market. There's a lot less animal testing in those situations, to my knowledge. Now I don't know for sure if it's completely gone, or or what. But okay. I, so I nobody, think it's a lot, there's a lot less. Nobody you want to. Uh, shout out right now and and destroy like you don't have a, a fight with ralph lauren that you're uh, currently you know in legal battles with no i'm ignorant about what goes on in those places okay cool same um well listen i really enjoyed uh speaking with you both i i loved this movie uh i thank you both for watching it and for being on the program uh michael i assume that you are you are back doing shows so if there's anything you want to uh, tell people about or or how people can find you online uh go ahead um yeah michaellongfellow.com definitely shows her shows her back come see a show excellent i i hope to do so uh blaze something you want to tell people about let them know what's going on oh you mean with loop back to ancestral health or yeah sure Okay, because that's coming up in two months. It's uh, August 12th through 14th at UCLA. And if you Google Ancestral Health Society, you will find our website and information about the... It's a nonprofit, an educational not-for-profit registered here in California. Our mission is, is to get the message out about actually how our understanding of evolution and human evolution in particular can inform about human health and disease and how we could live longer, healthier, happier lives. So we're having our 10 year anniversary event at UCLA. Excellent. Well, I hope to see you there. I'm going to get crazy wasted and do a bunch of mushrooms and, uh, <laughs> you know, that's very ancestral. <laughs> yeah. I'm, that's parasites. <laughs> do a bunch of parasites and my cat's poop and just go crazy watching these speeches, man. Um, that sounds super fun. Yeah. Thank you both once again. And, uh, I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bad Science is a seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. The executive producer is Brett Kushner and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver, but it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.